with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It's the Friday edition, which means we have the panel and some hot topics coming up in about a half an hour's time. But first off, here's this morning's front burner from CBC News. Hello, I'm Jamie Poisson. In the wake of last week's attack on the U.S. Capitol, the Proud Boys, a group founded by Canadian Gavin McInnes, has been under intense pressure. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has called for them to be designated a terrorist group. The federal government is considering that, and the FBI is arresting some of the group's members. Today, how the Proud Boys started and where they ended up. This is Frontburner. My guest today is Jared Holt. He's a visiting researcher at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, where he studies domestic extremism. Jared, thank you so much for making the time to come to the podcast today. Oh, it's a pleasure. If only it was under better circumstances. Absolutely. Uh, So I'd like to start at the beginning here, at the origins of this group. And and briefly, who is the Proud Boys founder, Gavin McInnes? Uh, Gavin McInnes is a longtime Canadian media figure who has really prided himself on kind of sticking it, really, to the larger legacy media uh, conglomerates that have existed both in Canada and the United States. And it's really that drive to put up a proverbial middle finger to the established order of things that motivates him and drives him forward. Right, right. And, and people might also remember him as um, one of the founders of Vice magazine, although he and Vice cut ties in, in 2008. And, and he was also a contributor to the Canadian far-right video channel, Rebel Media. And he had his own show on another streaming platform. And, and when the group was founded in, in New York in 2016, what did he say at that point about what the group was all about? Yeah, Gavin McInnes wrote a article for a far-right publication called Talkies Mag, uh, in which he debuted the group in 2016. The way he described it was a group of young men who were, uh, you know, it started out as a fan club for his show on Compound Media at the time. And they would get together, they'd drink, um, they'd get in fights, and kind of poke fun at themselves. They would you know, sing along songs from Aladdin, discuss, uh, you know, Pat Buchanan, and, you know, just gather together, get drunk, and engage in this far-right material that, you know, essentially painted a portrait of a Western world in decline. Right. And can you tell me a little bit more about the beliefs that this group held at the time? So I know by, by the time that McKinnis founds the group, he he's already come under very hot water for really controversial uh, statements that he's made. Most women are happier at home. They are pretending that they like working. And Racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, Islamophobic statement at this point. Yeah, at the time, uh, in 2016, the group primarily was driven forward by this idea that racial justice initiatives, uh, you know, attempts to diversify representation in entertainment and news media uh, and, you know, a whole host of other hot button issues of the time were part of this, you know, kind of broader project to delegitimize white people in some way or to make people 
uh, with Western heritage feel guilty or lesser than, mm-hmm. uh, which is remnant of you know more extreme white genocide conspiracy theories, which believe that there's forces underway to uh, essentially destroy the Western world and uh, white people's majority uh, population in it. And you know, in addition to that, I, I just want to pick up on something you mentioned before, the, the jokes. Uh, you know, uh, I understand that the Proud Boys actually came from this song in Aladdin called Proud of Your Boy. Proud of your boy, I'll make you proud of your boy. Believe me, bad as I've been, Ma, you're in for a pleasant surprise. And it, it does seem like, especially in those early stages, the Proud Boys place this big emphasis on irony, right? On making jokes. And, and for example, their membership rituals, too. And, and can you remind me about those? Yeah, uh, the membership rituals uh, range from, uh, you know, reciting a pledge in the first degree. The second degree is getting uh, pummeled by other members of the group while naming breakfast cereals. One, two, three, go. It's this is part of what it takes to become a member of a group that calls itself Proud Boys. Getting punched by a group of guys while naming breakfast cereals to join the self-professed Western chauvinist multiracial fraternal organization started in the U.S. last year. The third degree, I believe, uh, is still a, a getting a tattoo from the organization. And then the fourth degree being uh, engaging in some sort of physical altercation uh, while representing the group. Mm-hmm. And I want to come back to that idea of fighting in, in a moment. But, you know, so, so McKinnis forms this group in 2016. And can you tell me a little bit about how this group grows and spreads across the United States and, and even in Canada? The, the group originally, uh, you know, gets popular in New York City. Um, and then once word of this group starts to spread, uh, because Gavin McKinnis is a media figure who was at the time reaching audiences all across the United States, by the end of the year, we saw chapters popping up in the Pacific Northwest and California. And the group boasted, you know, what they claimed at the time to be around a thousand members. So hmm. it came together fairly quickly. Um all united by his, uh, you know, entertainment, politics, news, media show. Right. And I know that by 2017, we're also talking about many chapters uh, in Canada as well. And, and to come back to this idea of fighting, at what point do you think that street fighting started to play a really prominent role in, in the group's identity? I, you know, the first big thing that happened with the Proud Boys uh, solidifying the fighting along with their image was uh, in New York City. Gavin McInnes gave a speech at a university and showed up with about a dozen members of the Proud Boys who then clashed with anti-fascist demonstrators outside the speech. And from there on out, uh, you know, from all the video and the photos that came out at the time, this group became associated with those kind of confrontations. And, you know, another confrontation that immediately comes to mind uh, is at Berkeley in 2017. And can you tell me a little bit more about this one? Yeah, some members on the ground in Berkeley uh, were engaged in what at the time was a a very sort of standoffish 
uh, situation between extreme right wing political figures and people who didn't, you know, want those figures uh, engaging in hate speech or, or otherwise in public spaces. Most notably, out of the Berkeley era of the Proud Boys was an individual named Kyle Chapman, who became a viral sensation in extreme right uh, online communities after he was uh, photographed and filmed uh, hitting anti-fascist and anti-racist protesters with a wooden stick. They called him Based Stick Man. Gavin McInnes invited him into the Proud Boys, where he then formed a sort of paramilitary wing of the Proud Boys called the Fraternal Order of Alt Knights. I was thrust uh-huh. into the movement uh, due to my actions at the first Battle of Berkeley. There are multiple instances of Trump supporters just being relentlessly attacked. I said, that's it. Next time there's a rally, I'm going to show up and I'm going to protect my brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's when I flew into action and uh, started to defend myself and others. And I think he had to do with a stick. Flagpole. And tell me a little bit more about this um, other faction of the Proud Boys. So the Proud Boys at the time were engaging in, you know, brawls. They'd, you know, get in drunken fights outside of bars and outside of events. But the Fraternal Order of Alt Knights, uh, in effect, was kind of the frontline shock troop of the Proud Boys uh, for the time that it existed. It, you know, those were the ones who were directly going out and seeking these confrontations and seeking to inflict maximum harm among the people they were targeting. Right. And, you know, during this time, can you talk to me a little bit about where Trump fits in here? Yeah, the Proud Boys were part of a, you know, broader sort of alt-right media phenomena that rose up alongside Trump. Um, You know, there's a lot of coverage at the time on how this new coalition of digital savvy and extreme rhetoric deploying network of online figures and media figures and organizations were coming together around supporting President Donald Trump. And Gavin McInnes and his Proud Boys were a big part of that development. Segment one of this morning's Front Burner from CBC News. We have part two coming up in a moment here on 93.1 CFIS FM. You're listening to After Nine. Join us each week for Music and the Spoken Word, featuring the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square, the longest running continuous weekly network broadcast in the world, celebrating over 90 years on the air. Each episode features modern and traditional arrangements of spiritual, patriotic, classical, and contemporary music, and a timely, inspiring message. Music and the Spoken Word with the Tabernacle Choir. Sunday mornings at 7 here on 93.1 CFIS FM. We are living in stressful times. Among the hardest hit are caregivers, health care providers, and people living with dementia. If you're feeling extreme stress, the Alzheimer's Society of BC encourages you to seek extra support, such as speaking to a trusted friend, calling their First Link Dementia Helpline, or connecting with a mental health professional. Visit their Caregiver Stress webpage to read the 10 warning signs of stress and the Caregiver Stress Checklist. Find out where your stress level is at. Go to alzbc.org slash caregiverstress. 
put the arts and steam at Two Rivers Gallery. Children ages 9 to 14 are invited to join in Wednesday afternoons for creative open-ended steam projects introducing a range of handy skills and problem-solving techniques. Fun Toys is a theme this time as they make a puppet, a Jacob's Ladder, and more. Contact the gallery for full details and registration or visit their Facebook page. Makers Club, putting the arts in steam. Starting January 27th at Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in the Canada Games Plaza. Forecast from Environment Canada, mainly sunny today. Wind from the south at 30, gusting to 50 and a high of 4. Tonight, partly cloudy, gusting south winds continuing, a low of minus 3 with a wind chill to minus 9. For Saturday, mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of showers or flurries in the afternoon. More gusting south winds, a high of plus 2. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And here is part 2 of your Friday morning front burner from CBC News. You know, now we're heading into the summer of 2017, and Canadians might also remember around this time um, that, that the Proud Boys popped up in the news here. Five Canadian servicemen who identified as Proud Boys disrupted a group of Indigenous protesters who wanted the statue of, of the Nova Scotia Lieutenant Governor Edward Cornwallis to be removed because of his dark history towards Indigenous people. This is Kevin. It might have been. It might have been. So you don't have Canadian ID. You don't uh, pay your taxes. You don't have a Medicare card. This is not an argument. I want to talk to you about August 2017 because this is when something very significant happens to the Proud Boys, and and that is the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. And and this is, of course, a very violent rally that brought together a huge number of neo-Nazis, other far-right hate groups. A counter-protester was killed. And where Donald Trump infamously said there were good people on both sides. If you look, there were people protesting very quietly the taking down of the statue of Robert E. Lee. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. Gavin McInnes didn't attend that rally. He even told Proud Boy members not to go. But why did that event still have huge repercussions for the group? Well, one of the key organizers of that event, uh, Jason Kessler, had been affiliated with the Proud Boys. So it wasn't just that a couple Proud Boys didn't listen to Gavin McInnes and attended anyway. Uh, Somebody who was associated with the group actually was one of the lead organizers of the whole thing. Um, And this really hit the group hard because, uh, you know, Gavin and the Proud Boys had been, you know, trying to dance around and try to figure out how to shape their image and maintain that alt-right patina without uh, being labeled white supremacist. And this really made things a lot more difficult for them. Right, because within six months... The Southern Poverty Law Center, the the American Legal Advocacy Organization, labels them a a hate group, something that they deny. Right. In the wake of Charlottesville, I know by this point there are schisms in the group. And and, and how do the Proud Boys start to change and evolve after they find themselves in this position post-Charlottesville? Well, they have another identity crisis um, on their hands. You know, Gavin and... Other prominent members of the Proud Boys continue to try to find the thin line that they can walk where they, you know, can engage in this hateful rhetoric against, uh, you know, LGBT people, against Muslims, against different minority groups without being 
associated with the most extreme white supremacist groups. And that dance is is kind of going back and forth. Um, but another notable change that we start to see in 2018 is a more direct involvement in electoral politics from the Proud Boys. We start to see uh, Republican politicians in the U.S., uh, you know, having photos coming out of their events where Proud Boys are present in their black and gold uniforms. Um, and later that year, they even show up in Florida in, in the middle of a very contentious uh, election recount situation and, you know, make their presence felt in a physical way. Right. And, and you mentioned sort of um, this closeness with party politics more um, before the, the Florida protests in fall of 2018, something else significant happened, particularly for McInnes, right? And that was this big, violent brawl outside the Metropolitan Republican Club in New York where he was speaking. And, and what do we know about what happened there? So Gavin McInnes showed up there. It is one of the you know oldest and most prestigious bastions of Republican organizing in New York City. And he gives a speech to a small crowd. And, you know, from there, the Proud Boys at, that are attending exit, they go outside. Gavin McInnes, uh, you know, was filmed waving a katana around his head. Um, and the Proud Boys all riled up. Go confront anti-fascist oh, protesters. Oh my god! Oh my god! No! And end up getting arrested. Uh, several of them were actually uh, sentenced and are serving time in jail now. You see those proud boys? After that, uh, you know, Gavin McInnes goes on to eventually resigned from his leading position of the group, uh, citing the advice of his lawyers, thinking that if he stepped away from the group in some formal capacity, that it would make the sentencing a bit lighter on the members of his group that had been arrested. I'm officially disassociating myself from the Proud Boys. In all capacities, forever, I quit. And meanwhile, at, at this point, he's been kicked off. Uh, mainstream social media platforms, right? Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and, and the group has as, as well by the fall of 2018. Right. So, you know, by the time this happens, the Proud Boys have already faced massive public scrutiny. They've been deplatformed from many major social media companies. And Gavin, as a leader, is becoming less and less effective. He's less and less able to really maintain control of his group anymore. And I know at, at some point, uh, the Proud Boys enter a new era of leadership and uh, Enrique Tario steps in. And, and who is Enrique Tario? Uh, Enrique Tario uh, took over shortly after Gavin McInnes uh, stepped away formally from the group. He uh, was appointed then and remains the group's leader today. He uh, is of mixed race. He uh, is the descendant of Cuban immigrants. And what Enrique was able to do was, you know, unite the group in a common cause and promote sort of a singular projection of the group's image. And he did that by drawing from his heritage as a uh, descendant of Cuban immigrants to essentially turn the group into an anti-communist organization. Um 
even today, much of the leading propaganda, advertisements, and message of the Proud Boys is explicitly anti-socialist, anti-communist, and they've reached great success with that message, uh, which kind of echoes themes that have been playing out in broader pro-Trump circles. And can you take me through some examples of that, of how it's been playing out relatively recently in the last year or two? You know, in the last year or two, we've seen more Republican politicians having their photos taken with members of the group. We've seen the group attending political conferences, which was something they didn't do until recently, uh, mainstream political conferences. And where we saw them very frequently uh, was at protest against coronavirus restrictions and also at counter protests against Black Lives Matter uh, racial justice demonstrations that occurred in the U.S. earlier this year. We have to call it what it is. The Black Lives Matter is a Marxist violent organization, and so is Antifa. Whose country is it? A judge has banned Proud Boys leader Henry Enrique Tarrio from Washington, D.C. This after Tarrio was arrested earlier this week. He faces weapons charges and destruction of property. Tarrio admitted to taking down and burning a Black Lives Matter flag at D.C. church last month, but he says he burnt the flag out of love and not of hate. And, and just to be clear here, like when the group says they're anti-communist, what are they talking about? What do they mean? So when they say anti-communist, uh, what they really mean is they're anti-anybody that they think is a communist, which can be anyone from Joe Biden to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to actual communist organizations. Um, so to be anti-communist on its face may not sound too offensive to more mainstream Republicans. But to really understand what that means, you have to understand that in the U.S., you know, in right-wing politics, the umbrella has been opened as, to, as far as what is considered communist. And the Proud Boys have used that to their advantage. Um, I don't think most places in the world, um, people gathering in the street and protesting, demanding equal treatment by police based on race uh, would be considered a communist cause, really. But for the Proud Boys, it is. So we've got this group with its roots in violence and, and also roots in um, really deplorable ideas, um, uh, sexism, Islamophobia, racism, as, as we've talked about. And, you know, over the years, it has morphed somewhat uh, in that it has taken on this very sort of anti-communist approach and also aligned itself more closely with political institutions, as you've explained. And, and I think all of this brings us to September 2020, when Donald Trump says something in a presidential debate that has now become infamous. What do you want to call him? Give me a name. Give me a white name. Right. Who would you like me to condemn? Proud Boys. And right Proud Boys. Boys, stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. Proud Boys what. stand back and stand by. And, and Jared, as someone who's been researching this group for years, what did you think when you heard that? I thought, uh, you know, this is the best thing that could have ever happened to the Proud Boys. Uh, the president not only mentioned their name, but also spoke of them in a way telling them to stand by. And, you know, in the days that followed, if we're to believe the Proud Boys, which I, I tend to believe them on this point, their membership applications just skyrocketed off the charts. But another thing that that moment really represented was that the Proud Boys' efforts to reshape their image post-Charlottesville into this 
pro-Trump, anti-communist group that's part of a larger MAGA movement solidified itself in a way that was undeniable and on the national stage for all to see. their role in in the stop the steal quote-unquote movement that happened in the wake of the election after Donald Trump uh, did not win the election but claimed that he had won the election. Yeah, so the Proud Boys took that uh, stand back and stand by message to heart throughout the election, uh, you know, being this unabashed pro-Trump force. And then after the election, once votes were counted and major news media organizations started calling Joe Biden the president-elect, then the Proud Boys started to glom on to what would become the national Stop the Seal protest movement. And then, you know, we all know what happened. Last week, it, it was the manifestation of that at the U.S. Capitol. Angry supporters of the president advancing on the Capitol. USA! USA! Officers tried to push back, firing pepper bullets into the agitated crowd. Trump supporters only grew bolder, and police lost control. And, and since then, the leader of the Proud Boys Hawaii chapter has been arrested for entering the U.S. Capitol building. The FBI has written in affidavits that self-identified members of the Proud Boys descended on Washington to protest the election certification. The FBI announced earlier this week that police had actually arrested Enrique Tario before last week's insurrection, before actually. They said that they had information that he was planning to incite violence, although he he denies it. He, say, he says that he's being scapegoated by the police and, and condemned the violence. Um, in the U.S., of course, this is part of a, a much broader crackdown on all sorts of people who, who allegedly took part in this insurrection. And, and of course, one of the reasons you and I are having this discussion is because the Canadian government is considering designating the Proud Boys a terrorist organization. They're spurred by their involvement in, in last week's siege. And, and Jared, where does this all leave the Proud Boys today? Well, the Proud Boys, you know, just like after Unite the Right in Charlottesville, and just like after that fight outside the Metropolitan Republican Club, yet again have another identity crisis on their hands. This ragtag group of street brawlers with abhorrent beliefs now faces itself with an identity crisis. Do they maintain a boots-on-the-ground present, uh, engaging in brawls, or do they try to lay low for a little bit, especially now that the federal government and the U.S. national security apparatus is paying very close attention to them? Hmm. So they're, they're stuck in the middle between their image and their consequences. Okay, and h- how do you think that this will probably play out in, in the weeks and months to follow? It really remains to be seen. Um, You know, I've been sort of surprised at many turns in the Proud Boys development, but the group is large enough at this point that I I think it will inevitably carry forward to some degree and with some uh, great deal of membership. 
But what those individuals do, uh, particularly as Joe Biden takes office, uh, kind of remains to be seen. I don't know that they really have come up with a good plan yet. Okay. And and just for our listeners here in Canada, too, um, our colleague Stuart Bell of Global News is reporting that the Manitoba chapter of the Proud Boys uh, is disbanding, but other chapters he reached out to either did not respond or sent him uh, vulgar, vul- vulgarities in response to his request. So uh, lots of questions about the future of, of the Proud Boys organization on this side of the border as well. Jared Holt, thank you so much for this conversation. Really appreciative. And uh, I hope that you'll come back uh, as the story develops. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. I know way too much about these groups. So it's, it's always great to have an outlet to spill it out. All right. That is all for this week. Front Burner is brought to you by CBC News and CBC Podcasts. The show is produced this week by Imogen Burchard, Elaine Chow, Shannon Higgins, and Ellie Janes. Our sound design was by Derek Vanderweyck and Matt Cameron. Our music is by Joseph Shabison of Boombox Sound. And the executive producer of Front Burner is Nick McCabe-Locos. I'm Jamie Poisson. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. On 93.1 CFIS-FM, that is the Friday morning front burner from CBC News. You can also catch front burner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Stick around when After 9 returns. It is the Friday panel with your host, Nathan Gita. The College of New Caledonia's blueprint for the future is beginning to take form as its new strategic plan enters the next phase. CNC's Board of Governors has identified four key areas of focus for their strategic plan and are now asking for your perspectives on these priorities through a new online survey. For a link to the new survey or more information on CNC's strategic planning process, visit cnc.bc.ca slash cncnext50. The survey for public input to the ongoing development of CNC's strategic plan is available through Wednesday. Adapting to our new digital world is not always easy. Connecting with customers who are currently unable to walk through your doors is vital. If you need a hand moving your business or not-for-profit in the right direction, the solution is already here. DER3 is a government-funded program delivered by Hubspace, which provides a no-cost, no-obligation evaluation of your digital presence with some of the best digital experts in northern BC ready to help you. The DER3 program from Hubspace. Visit hubspace.ca slash DER3 today. Friendly phone calls are an important part of daily life for seniors living alone. The Prince George Council of Seniors Friendly Phone Calls program helps keep those isolated individuals active and connected to our community. If you're a senior looking for someone to talk to or a volunteer willing to make a few calls for a couple of hours each week, get involved. Call the Council of Seniors at 250-564-5888 or stop by the office at the corner of 7th and Victoria. This March, take action and change the future for the estimated 70,000 British Columbians living with dementia. Take part in the Alzheimer's Society of BC's Breakfast to Remember. It's a virtual fundraiser featuring a keynote address with astronaut Colonel Chris Hatfield. Ticket purchasers will also receive exclusive access to the Society's research event on March 10th. The Alzheimer's Society of BC's Breakfast to Remember, 7.30 to 9, Thursday, March 4th. For more information or tickets, visit alzheimerbc.ca. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Yes, of course, we're here with the panel portion that we have on Fridays 
here at After Nine. I'm your host, Nathan Gita, and I'm joined by Herb Martin, Bill Phillips, Art Betke, and Eric Allen, our lovely diversity crew. And we're going to get right into the virus again and the questions of vaccination and how are things going or how are things not going? We'll start with Herb. Uh, things are going fairly slowly, I guess. Um, uh, it looks like um, people won't, uh, Canadians won't get fully, or all Canadians won't have a chance to be vaccinated until September. So, uh, yeah, it's looking um, a little slow. But um, uh, on the plus side, there's enough vaccines uh, available for all Canadians to be vaccinated uh, eventually. Bill, I mean, uh, then I guess we should all just wake up when September ends, to quote a certain song. Uh, why will things get get better? Will things get more uh, loosened up? Or are we going to be stuck with restrictions then all the way until September? Well, I think that kind of depends on where our numbers lie. I think if uh, we're on a we're on a, a bit of a sort of leveling off, we're not really going down that much here in BC. Um, but if our our Infection rates uh, kind of level off right now around 500 a day. If we get down to probably four or 300, then I expect that uh, some restrictions would be, be lifted. But I think overall we, we could probably look at some sort of restriction and, until September when everyone uh, who wants to be vaccinated uh, gets vaccinated. Art, I mean, they're uh, trying different things in different parts of the world. Um, some places are totally open. Some places are on curfew, like our lovely uh, sister in Confederation, Quebec. Uh, what's working and what isn't working? Well, there's a good question. I don't think anybody really knows. Um, social distancing seems to have a pretty good effect. Uh, that's why you get bumps after things like uh, Christmas gatherings and Thanksgiving gatherings. Uh, masks seem to be totally ineffective if you look at all the different jurisdictions, some who have had mask mandates for months and some who have not, yet they all have the same patterns of infection. So uh, it, it, it's a real combination. I, I don't think anybody knows for sure. I think uh, they're doing the best they can, but yeah, it, what's going to happen, the best, most effective thing is going to be time. Um, I expect in spring the infections will drop right down like they did last year. And uh, in summer, they'll be very low again. It's just what pandemics do. Eric, I mean, um, people are, you know, trying to figure out whether we're going to be past this sooner rather than later. Now we're hearing uh, things out to September. Um, some people might recall in a couple of weeks, uh, we were at two weeks to flatten the curve. That was 366 days ago, almost. Um, are people right to feel a little bit frustrated or should people just be patient? Well, I don't think you really have much of a choice. I mean, this thing's not going to go away. And we heard quite a while ago that uh, it was going to take uh, at least a year before we've seen any significant change in what's going on. We don't really know what's happening. It, it looks like these work camps and slaughterhouses and all the and games where people are playing close together with no masks or something, after those deals, there's usually a big... Uh, increase in uh, people getting this COVID. So we sort of have some idea where it is. I haven't heard too many instances of people in neighborhoods or whatever getting it. Like, I don't know if anybody in my neighborhood got it. And if there was, there might be one or two or something. So if you're wearing masks and you're going about your business and you're distancing and that, I think that has a positive effect on, 
on it, but it's this other stuff, you know, like into the bars and into things that people like to do for entertainment or whatever. But there's a risk attached to that. And it's hard to get people to change the way they do things or the way they think and, and, and not do that. <clears throat> so it's going to be with us for a while. There's some talk that it may change to a, what do they call it, a pandemic or something. And it may come back every year for the next 10 or 15 years, where it may mutate and uh, disappear. But uh, I don't think it's going anywhere anywhere soon. And, you know, if we look at uh, down in the States when this first started, Christ, we had hospital ships coming into San Francisco Bay, and we had big uh, tent hospitals out in parking lots all over the place. That all disappeared. Nobody said a word. So I really don't know what's going on. Herb, that has been kind of one of the ongoing questions for lots of different people. Um, one day everything seems super tense and serious. The next day things uh, restrictions are relaxed and it uh, looks like we might be past the worst of it. Then the restrictions come back. How, how should people be reacting to these things uh, now that they might be looking another nine months of the future? I think the, the thing to recognize is that it is extremely transmissible. Um, people keep seem to keep... Um, forgetting that or don't want to believe that uh, it's uh, it's yeah it's it's not easy to get rid of it it, it can be getting rid of uh, look at Australia New Zealand uh, I think Taiwan's doing very well as well um, Hong Kong uh, Korea uh, so you know but it it really takes a, a, a uniform and uh, uh, effort on, on the part of everyone, really, and that's we haven't actually got that yet in Canada. There are still significant people, numbers of people that don't want to wear masks, that, um, that don't believe that it's a particularly severe uh, disease, that it's uh, just another variant of the flu. So as long as we have those sorts of people, uh, we're going to have these recurring uh, outbreaks. Bill, I mean, again, we, we're looking at a, a year past now where we were at two weeks to flatten the curve or 15 days to flatten the curve. What, how, how has our mentality changed and, and what do we need to carry with us into the future? Well, I think one thing that's changed is we have a lot more information now. We, we can look back on March of, of last year and, and criticize everything we did because it, uh, some of it didn't work. Um, but we were going on the best information we had at the time. We have a lot more information now. Um, we have a lot more data. We understand how this virus works a lot better now. Um, so uh, I think, uh, you know, we've, we've moved forward, and, and we have to continue to, to look forward, and, and rather than, than uh, pick apart what we did a year ago, uh, look forward and, and say, what are we going to do now? How do we get out of this? Well, looking forward to what we do now. We'll do that right after this break. Since 1986, the Canadian Grandparents' Rights Association has helped families in distress. Its purpose is to promote, support, and assist grandparents in maintaining or re-establishing family ties and family stability where the family has been disrupted. The Canadian Grandparents' Story, Family Matters by Daphne Jennings, outlines the history, activities, and successes of the CGRA and topics such as parental alienation and elder abuse. The Canadian Grandparents' Story, Family Matters by Daphne Jennings, available from Amazon. 
Submissions are now open for the 20th Anniversary Canadian Independent Music Awards. Presented by Jim Beam and streamed live on May 21st, the awards are a celebration of new music and the artists who inspire the independent spirit, both nationally and internationally. It's a chance to be recognized among industry peers, media, and fans. For complete submission details, eligibility criteria, and award categories, visit indies.ca. The 20th Anniversary Canadian Independent Music Awards. Submission deadline is Friday, February 5th. Life Labs has launched its COVID-19 antibody test. Approved by Health Canada, the test helps customers and their health care providers determine prior COVID-19 infection. If you're interested in getting the COVID-19 antibody test, please talk to your health care provider. For more information on how to get the test, plus frequently asked questions, the process, and reviewing your results, visit the COVID-19 antibody test page at lifelabs.com. Forecast for Environment Canada, mainly sunny today, wind from the south at 30, gusting to 50 and a high of 4. Tonight, partly cloudy, gusting south winds continuing, a low of minus 3 with a wind chill to minus 9. For Saturday, mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of showers or flurries in the afternoon. More gusting south winds, a high of plus 2. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Well, of course, we must come to uh, that most pressing matter on everyone's mind, uh, calls for impeachment, um, perhaps even a file for it at some point, even uh, in the media that resignation should happen, that heads should roll. Am I talking about uh, the orange man who still occupies the White House for another five minutes? No, no, I'm not. I'm talking about our mayor, Lynn Hall, and the fact that our beloved newspaper editor has actually called for the resignation of Mayor Lynn Hall. Uh, For hot takes on that, we will go straight to the panel. Herb Martin. Uh, yeah, he's actually called for the uh, uh, resignation of the mayor and of the finance, uh, uh, the chair of the finance uh, committee. So uh, I don't think either one should resign right at the moment, but I think they should both be uh, instrumental in uh, getting to the bottom of the whole situation and, um, and making clear exactly what did happen. Uh, I think they will be held to account. The $20 million uh, over budget is not something anyone's going to forget about, uh, especially in the next election. Bill, uh, you're the other newsman in town. What, what, in, you know, what in God's name happened over there? It's, suddenly there's been a complete reversal on most of uh, the editorials that have come out about the mayor and what's happening at City Hall. Uh, do, you know, do you know if anything's happened to your colleague, or uh, do you agree with your colleague in this question? Uh, well, it's, it's, if you've been following Neil's writings at all, it, it's a continuation. He's had a bee in his bonnet about everything City Hall for quite some time now, and he's uh, uh, been poking that hornet's nest. Some of it's warranted, some of it's not. I don't, uh, I don't think uh, calling for Lynn Hall's resignation is, is really warranted, not right now, mainly because we still don't know exactly what went on. You know, uh, and he's he suggested that if he did know, he should be he should quit. And if he didn't know, he should be quit, which uh, is is kind of a simplistic way to look at it. Um, we we really need to get to the bottom of this. There needs to be uh, um, an independent uh, investigation as to what exactly went on there. Um, you know, there's there's uh, you know suggestion at the end of the night that. Uh, um, or end of the meeting there that uh, the the uh, city manager of the day or someone at the city uh, committed the 
the project to $20 million when they didn't have the delegated authority to do so. So I think that's a, a real problem, and they're lucky that they got the delegated authority, or they would be probably mired in legal ramifications and be sued, which is more than going over budget is probably more dangerous uh, an issue than, than simply going over budget. Art, I mean, again, uh, this is seems like a bit of a reversal. Certainly some people put down their coffee cups and uh, had to read that headline again. Uh, what did you think of it? Well, I agree with uh, Herb and Bill. I don't think the mayor should resign. Um, there must be some, an investigation. We've got to know what happened. We want to know what happened, find out just exactly how it proceeded, how the approvals were given, and how the heck did it get to cost so much in the first place. Wasn't it just like a month or so ago when we were all shocked that it was only $10 million above budget, and now suddenly there's another $12 million on top of that? Somebody back then must have known that it was $20 million over instead of 10 but they didn't say it. They, you know, I, something's going on there. Somebody knew more than they're letting on. Eric, uh, you know, my generation doesn't know whether it's going to have a pension or uh, any of the kind of things that a previous generation did. So I'm thinking about selling the city a SkyTrain. Do you know who signed for this so that I can retire on that money? <laughs> yeah, this is sort of an interesting thing. <clears throat> and, of course, we did know. We just didn't read the small print of the... Uh, you know, the uh, contractor came to administration, you know, when they they hit that geyser, uh, you know, it wasn't oil. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a problem, but it was water. I think 280,000 gallons a day. And immediately they had to do something. But, I mean, the contractor said, this $12 million project is now going to cost you $20 million to get it completed. We don't have $20 million. We didn't have that $8 million. Administration would have to look around and try to find out where we're going to get this money from, or are we going to stop the project where it is, which would mean it'd be something like that hotel down there that would sit out in the open for four years or something, waiting for somebody else to come along or solve the problem. So it looks like administration made the decision, said, okay, we're going to go ahead with it. And then they must have thought, now we're going to have to figure out where to get the money. And what we've got to keep in mind is this contractor, we have to pay the contractor. He's working, he wants his money. And we can't just go out to the, the people and say, we've got to borrow another $20 million for this contract. I don't even know if, if they can legally borrow money for that type of a thing. So we've got to find it in the budget somewhere. She can't write it off. If it was 10 uh, smaller projects, she could have gone over $1 million on each project and got $10 million. No problem under the old legislation. So... Then they went and got this new legislation where she get 5% of the capital project, which is about $8 million. And that's the route they went. And now the council is saying, well, they were kind of deceived because they didn't, it wasn't the intent that she should have the authority to uh, get that amount of money on one project. But you see, now you get to the legal end of it, which is it didn't say she couldn't either. Okay? So if it doesn't say you can't, then... Legal, a lot of legal situations, you can't. So that's what they did. And it looks like she probably lost her job because of that, because she wasn't up front with counsel. But the actual money, like there was in, uh, uh, I think it was October, November 2019, Finance and Audit Committee, where a report was made 
through that committee by the administration showing that this budget is going to go from $12 million to $16 million or something. It was received into that meeting for information purposes. That's where uh, the chairman of the Finance Committee, which is Frizzell, should have taken that information right then to council and say, look, there's a problem here and we have to look into it. That didn't happen until three or four months later. Uh, for council to say that they didn't know anything about it, you know, if you read the last report that came in from Babix there, and, uh, and uh, uh, I don't know, Wells, it actually shows in the 2019 year-end report where the situation was with that, and it showed it at $17,763. And if council didn't know what was going on then, they should have read the report because it was in there. So now, what do we do? I, I think we need an inquiry. I think that, you know, the mayor's restricted in what he can do, and so is council. I mean, if you read the, their authority, they can't tell city council how to run the city. In fact, I heard one of the managers tell the mayor one time, it's not your job to tell us what to do and how to do it. We decide where the roads go. We decide where the sewers go, yada, yada. Your job is to either approve it or not approve it. So if they don't have the information, then they can't deal with it until they get it. So uh, they need a whole... But to get an independent auditor from outside, you know, I don't think that works. I, I think we need to uh, need more than that. I think the whole way that cities are run now in British Columbia and probably other provinces has to be looked at because it's not working, and it's certainly not working for taxpayers. It's certainly not working for taxpayers. We'll talk about this a little bit more after the upcoming break. The Indigenous Sport, Physical Activity and Recreation Council is accepting applications for the winter edition of its Equipment Grant Program. All First Nations, Métis Chartered Communities and Friendship Centres are eligible to apply. Equipment must be used to promote healthy, active lifestyles by reducing barriers and increasing access to sport, recreation and physical activity programs. Full details are available online at iSpark.ca. iSpark's Equipment Grant Program, the winter edition. Application deadline is Sunday, January 24th. Safety is taking a big step forward this year with the city's new Fire Hall No. 1 becoming operational. Administrative staff have moved into the building and the city expects fire suppression crews and equipment to be moved in and ready to operate from the building by the end of the month. Having crews and equipment strategically located at the more centralized site on Massey Drive will improve Fire Rescue's eight-minute response time, which is critical for keeping fires contained to one room. More information on the new Fire Hall is available through the News and Notices link at princegeorge.ca. Emily Carr University is hosting the International Dementia Lab Conference from January 18th to 28th. As part of the conference, on Monday, January 25th, the Alzheimer's Society of BC is co-hosting an online workshop on dementia-friendly research. If you are a caregiver or person living with dementia interested in research and would like to learn more or register for the workshop, visit alzbc.org slash dementia lab or email research at alzheimerbc.org. Applications are now being accepted for the John Howard Society's next Stop Taking It Out on Your Partner Domestic Violence Prevention Program. The STOP program delivers facilitated behavioral groups for individuals who have been involved in or fear the potential of violence in a relationship. A women's group meets Tuesday evenings starting January 26th, with a men's group meeting Wednesday evenings starting January 27th. To register, contact the Northern John Howard Society of BC at 250 561 73 
This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Yes, of course, we're here with the last portion of our panel we have at After 9 on Fridays. You know, we're just going to pivot right back into municipal politics here. Why does it always seem that every spending project, every project that happens in uh, Prince George, but certainly I'm sure other municipalities, is just always a bit of a dumpster fire. It always goes wrong. Uh, we'll start with Herb on this question. For example, the, the the fire hall I hear, I just got breaking news that the fire hall was almost not built big enough for the trucks to go inside. Herb? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, how many fire halls are built You know, in, in the course of a I don't know, 10 years. I mean, there must be some sort of standard plan they could use. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's mind-boggling. There's, it, it doesn't seem like there's very uh, very efficient use of funds at all. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's um, another inquiry, perhaps? I don't know. It's uh, hard, hard to get your head around it. Yeah, maybe I should become an independent auditor and start handing out audits to people. Um, it'd be great. Maybe I could make my money that way. Bill, uh, what what is it going to take for municipalities to just stop being managed so terribly, particularly ours? Uh, well, that's the that's the sixty four dollar question, I guess, or the sixty four million dollar question, depending on whose budget you use. Um, uh, just a, a small anecdote: uh, when I was in Williams Lake, I did an April Fool story. They were putting in a sewer line down there, and I did an April Fool story that the costs were going to increase because they forgot to factor in the cost of the pipe. Um, this, of course, got lots of people upset and lots of calls in city city yard because, as a good April Fool story, it was completely <laughs> ludicrous but completely believable because that sort of stuff goes on, right? It's like it doesn't. It's like getting Mike Holmes in to do your do your home, right? Bangs a hole in the wall, and geez, you got asbestos, you got water leakage, you got mice. It doesn't matter where he, where he hits. That seems to be the the problem. And once the hole's in the wall, you got to fund it. Uh, I just want to follow up a little bit on on what Eric said um, uh, about this being in the report. There was a an, an interesting exchange on one of the last meetings that Kathleen Soltis was the city manager, and this had come up. And she and city council was, I can't remember which member of council was giving her a bit of a hard time. And she very pointedly and, and very bureaucratically said, it was in the report that went to finance and audit. You should have read the report. So, you know, she gave them a smack upside the head publicly there. It's probably part of the reason why she left. But it was it was very true. And it's like Eric was saying, the information was there. Uh, nobody bothered to read the report. Art, is anybody bothering to read the report on anything anymore, or is everyone just kind of making promises and then hoping the money shows up later? Mm, yeah, I, I don't think anybody's reading reports to speak of, or a lot of these problems might not show up. Uh, I certainly aren't. Uh, I'm, I'm just listening to the news and uh, as it develops. Um, but I think a, a big part of the problem is that there's way too much enthusiasm for uh, city-funded projects in the first place. Um, and, and they get all excited about having the biggest and the best as well, like our pool. Uh, buy a, a hotel, tear it down and build a pool when they have other options to build it. And it has to be the most uh, state-of-the-art and fanciest with all the bells and whistles. I mean, Vanderhoof built one a whole lot cheaper. So it, it's just... I think that whole attitude that we want to spend money and build all these things, 
And, uh, you know, you can work it out ahead of time on paper, and it looks real good, but, boy, they, they're spending somebody else's money. They're spending the taxpayer's money and, and uh, their grandchildren's money. They should be a whole lot more cautious about it. In, and uh, maybe if they started with that attitude, they'd pay more attention as the things uh, proceed. Eric, uh, I have a proposal. We'll make you the Lord Protector of Prince George. Uh, you'll be in charge, and uh, you can vote no to everything all the time. And uh, that I, I usually things. do anyway, but nobody pays any attention. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we got there's some serious problems there. Like you can't talk to anybody at City Hall because they're not going to listen to you, and uh, the councillors really don't have that much authority, and and. The mayor, you know, he the only person he really has authority over is the uh, city manager. So, you know, it was suggested, uh, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but because they couldn't get that uh, fire truck, the the big fire truck into the number one down by on 7th Avenue there, I suggested that, uh, well, first I asked, well, where have you had it for the last 20 years since you bought it? Oh, well, it's up on our speaker then, and it worked there for 20 years. Why do you need a new station? If you've already had this truck working there for 20 years, well, I don't want to hear that. Or why don't you take uh, number one sign and put it up on our speaker and take number two on our speaker and put it back down on 7th Avenue, and that solves your problem. They want to build. They want to spend money. They, got, they go to the government to get money uh, on some of these projects, and they want to build a project. There's too many outside influences, and, and, of course, the contractors want to work, and the city wants to show that they're growing. And so down the road they go. This is nothing uh, just here. I mean, <clears throat> you know, they're, they were over 6 or $7 million on uh, on the Haggith Creek Bridge. They, they short-term borrowed that, like, for a five-year period. That means it's got to be paid back in five years. So does the sinkhole at Winnipeg and Kearney. They don't have that money right now to pay it back. That's why we went to, or they went and tried to borrow that $32 million. It's all connected, and that's why I agree with the uh, Builder, that we really we do need a big, big inquiry into the whole operation of Prince George. That parkade problem started when we bought Norgate and Ed Delorme property on Seventh Avenue ten years ago. We stopped getting taxes. We sat on it for ten years, and eventually we built something on it. Probably should have never bought it in the first place. Well, and with that, uh, we realize why we have to go back to an alderman slash ward system. But uh, that's it for our panel portion that we have this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you again next week on After 9. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita, with guest producer Neil Godbu of the Prince George Citizen. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. You're listening to 93.1 CFIS-FM, proudly partnered with local community groups like the Prince George Symphony Orchestra.